Bibles tonight, you can turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter 4. First letter, I should say. One of the more, um, I don't know if challenging is the right word, but, but one of the more challenging things about being a pastor can be trying to explain your job to people outside of the church, right? Um, many people already know what a pastor is. Plenty of others have enough uh, exposure to the church to have some sense of what you do, even if they imagine it as something very different from what the job actually involves in practice. But sometimes you do talk to people and they have genuinely no idea what you do. And when you have the opportunity to talk to someone who has no clue what you do, it really is a good chance to clarify uh, what you really think Christian ministry is. Uh, is it simply helping other people explore their spirituality? Is it something like uh, managing a church? The author Eugene Peterson said that Peterson said that he asked a colleague who was another pastor, uh, "What do you, you're a pastor? What do you do?" He simply said, "I run a church," which is I don't know the man at all, but that's a pretty bad answer, right? Uh, in American church culture, some churches literally use words from the business world. A lot of business ideas, practices have infected the church, infiltrated the church. And so you'll hear that come out sometimes in how folks describe pastoral ministry or even titles like a director or some churches have an executive pastor, things like that. Now, that kind of language might be helpful in explaining to people what a pastor does, I suppose, but it does run the risk of letting the corporate world and business standards reshape Christian ministry in its own image. And if you, if you go to enough church leadership conferences, you'll find this has happened pretty dr uh, dramatically in certain circles. But Paul's description of the role of a pastor in 1 Corinthians 4 is eye-opening, to say the least, especially when you... Read it in light of uh, how many people view what a pastor's role is. How does Paul want to be viewed? Uh, because that is where in God's providence we find both pastors and congregations what the role actually is. And in Paul's description of pastoral ministry, it becomes clear what the expectation should be on both sides, pastor and congregation, and just how set and secure the church really is in the hands of the Lord. In the hands of the Lord, the church has been entrusted to servants of Christ who are called to faithfully steward his people as beloved children. Let's pray and then we'll look at this passage. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have included all the things that we need to be your church. Lord, I pray that you would help us pastor and congregation alike to receive these things, to understand these things, Father. Please help me preach clearly tonight your word and not my own. God, you must overshadow me for me to do that. And so, God, I ask for your help. And I ask for those who are listening, Lord, that you would open each ear in this room to hear, to gladly receive your word, for it is able to save our souls. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, 
do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul wants to be viewed as a servant and a steward. A man to whom the revelation of God has been entrusted and who has the responsibility to proclaim it wherever he goes. In other words, Paul is like a trustee. Not a trustee in the sense that we use the word, but in the spiritual sense of having been given this enormously valuable resource, the gospel of Christ, to care for others. And Paul actually lays out the job description as we should all understand the pastor's role in one little sentence here in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so there it is. The pastor's job is to be faithful to God in his stewardship of the gospel for the sake of the church, in his ministry to the flock. That's his calling. That's his requirement. That's his job. It's not to be successful by anyone else's standards or expectations. It's not to make the church grow. It's not to run a church like a business. It's not to make a profit. It's not to be popular. It's not to make everybody happy. It is to be faithful to God as a steward of the gospel for the sake of people as a servant of Christ. Paul has been called by God to steward the resource of the gospel diligently and then to preach it faithfully. It's not actually his thing at all. It belongs to God. And that means it has to be stewarded in God's interests, not Paul's, and certainly not, he's saying, the Corinthians. It also means in verses 3 and 4 that his accountability is to God and not to the Corinthians. They can think of him what they will. He is not validated by their approval. He's not invalidated by their disapproval. God will make all of that plain. God will reveal hearts on the final day. As we've seen, people in the Corinthian congregation have been aligning themselves with specific human leaders, including Paul, and obviously expect certain things in return for that allegiance. Later on in the Corinthian letters, we discover that some of them are using money to express that allegiance in practical practical ways, which is one of the reasons why Paul won't take their money as he talks about much later in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. Not because it was wrong or a sin to take payment for his pastoral work, but because of the reason so many of those with money in this congregation wanted to pay him. His response to them is very simple. In the end, his ministry, his stewardship of the mysteries of God in Christ, in verse 1, will be judged by God, not by them, which he's uh, described at length uh, in chapter 3, verses one to 23, what his, uh, how they should understand human leaders, right? He tells them, he knows many of them don't approve of the way he stewards this ministry, but he doesn't actually work for them, right? That's, that's not how they should view it. Paul wants nothing to do with that sort of mindset. He works for God. He is waiting for God's judgment on his ministry. And look, pastors can read that and we can abuse that and use that to serve our own purposes and um, you know, not hear wisdom, not care about congregation. So all of that can certainly take place. You can see how a pastor could take this and be very self-serving with it, right? That's very clear. However, we also can't ignore the truth of what Paul is saying. The fact that it can be misused doesn't change what the truth of the matter is. And we as pastors should certainly not misuse it, but we often do. But the truth is the truth. Paul is waiting for God to judge his ministry, not anybody else. On that day, in verse 5, 
everything that's hidden will come to light anyway. The motives of every heart will be revealed and everyone will receive their praise from God accordingly. Which is why Paul says, don't, we don't have the knowledge we need to judge before that day whether or not one is actually good at shepherding, at stewarding. We, we really don't know. And the problem comes when we try to identify who's good and who's bad because what we're going to do is use worldly standards to do it and worldly guidelines to do it. That's why it's so dangerous when business practices, for example, get brought into the church as a means to evaluate whether or not a pastor is good at what he's doing. But Paul is saying, no, we don't judge before the time. We don't judge at all. We let God do that. And Paul doesn't use his own opinion or evaluation of himself as his validation either in verse 4. He's saying, I'm not aware of anything I'm doing that's wrong. However, that doesn't validate me. Right? I don't look to that either, and neither should the church. The church shouldn't say, well, Paul agrees with what he's doing, so it's, it's, it's fine. That's not how Paul is validated. His goal is to be faithful to God and let God determine his commendation. We will error or err if we try to do God's job in evaluating the stewardship of our pastors. That waiting and being faithful to God and letting God determine his commendation, that makes for the best kind of pastor. Because wanting our commendation as pastors from people instead will greatly harm our ability to be faithful in our stewardship. And by the way, uh, I speak that, I say that because I'm aware, I feel the constant temptation to do so. Right? We want to be liked. We want to be thought highly of. We want to be approved of. And so understanding that we can't use that um, to establish or validate our own ministry and that we shouldn't want to. That's a constant battle for the pastor. So that knife of the fact that we're only accountable to God, that cuts both ways. It could make us be horribly prideful or it can make us be um, desirous of things we shouldn't desire. So this is the foundation, however, for what Paul means when he continues here in verse 6. So let's pick it up there. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There's a set standard in Scripture. Use that, Paul is saying. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul doesn't want to go beyond what is written, he says, which is why he's so committed to his conception of ministry as this, the stewardship of the mysteries of God that's revealed in the gospel. It seems that Paul is saying his approach to ministry is designed to show the importance of living according to Scripture and refusing to go beyond it in the face of pressure from the world and refusing to go beyond it in the face of demands for worldly wisdom that in this case are coming from the congregation, coming from the Corinthians. They have different expectations, different demands. And Paul is saying we cannot go beyond what is written because remember in chapter 3, if we do that, we're building with wood, hay, and straw and we'll destroy the church. If, if we don't harm it, we're going to uh, destroy it. So Paul doesn't want to go beyond, not one ounce beyond what is written. And the scriptures he has in mind here are the ones he's just written specifically on the foolishness of human wisdom. 119, 3, 
19 to 20, the wonder and incomprehensibility of divine wisdom in 2.9 and 2.16, and the importance of boasting only in the Lord back in 1.31. That's really specifically what he's talking about. Andrew Wilson writes that by ministering as he does, Paul wants to make plain the power of living by the Word of God, and in particular, of living by its teaching on humility and wisdom, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In verse 6, the minute we get away from what's been written to evaluate, to judge, we're going to get in the flesh. We're going to operate by human wisdom. And our eyes don't see clearly. We don't have the ability to judge as purely as God does. And so he says, so stay in what God has told you. Don't add anything into it. Don't add expectations. Don't add requirements. Stick with what has been written. That takes a lot of faith on everyone's part, right? Because we're going to be pulled. The pastor is going to be pulled by his own flesh, his own tendency toward pride and all these things. The congregation is going to be pulled by expectations and it should look different. It should be better. We're all going to be thinking like that. And Paul is saying, don't go beyond what is written. That's why you're in trouble in Corinth, he says. That's how we got where we are. He's saying to this congregation, letting the Scriptures define the scope and expectations of pastoral ministry is the best way to guard the church against being destroyed by human wisdom. Not going beyond what is written. At the end of this section, he asks one of the most beautiful questions in the entire Bible in verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? So what Paul is asking those who are caught up in themselves here, particularly the leaders, the pastors in Corinth. What do you have that you did not receive? That's Paul's theology basically in one sentence. All of it. All is grace. Everything the Corinthians have and everything Paul has and everything we have is the gift of God. The cross, the spirit, the wisdom of God made known in Christ. Any knowledge or insight that they have, they're all gifts. None of us has earned these things. And none of us deserve these things. Grace, more than any other Christian teaching, pulls the rug out from under our self-reliance and our boasting and our pride. If anything we have has been given to us by God, then how on earth can we boast as if these things are ours somehow by right? How could we lean into our own talents and desires and wisdom and abilities? How can we live under a system of worldly evaluation and worldly measurement? We're the result of God's grace here. So why would we use standards apart from grace, to evaluate and judge and describe and define and all these things. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. As Christians, usually certainly can't say all the time, but usually we're pretty surprised to find that under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit, the Bible includes the use of sarcasm and irony. 
It's there. Maybe we think the Word of God should contain only careful, earnest, logical arguments or worthy principles to live by, but not ironic jokes, not sarcastic rants like we just read. And it makes sense, right? None of us likes those things when they're directed toward us. I certainly don't. But if you read the teachings of Jesus, for example, more than just a few minutes, you'll find it. You'll very quickly find there's humor, there's irony, literally everywhere. But the two most sarcastic passages of Scripture are in First and Second Corinthians. The famous speech about fools, later in Second Corinthians 11:16 to 12:10, and then this passage right here, First Corinthians 4, 8 to 13. Look at verse 8 again. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. Beloved, Paul is ridiculing them, plain and simple. We can't and don't need to try to excuse Paul or save him from himself here. We aren't more righteous or more aware of how one should speak than the Holy Spirit is. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, given for our benefit, even words like this from Paul. Paul is making fun of the Corinthians. He's having fun with them. He's something like a late night talk show host right here. And how they are with their political satire. He's bursting their bubble of pretentious worldly wisdom and leadership and honor and status and how highly they think of themselves. We already know what he thinks of their social status from chapter 1, that when God saved them, the Corinthians weren't especially smart or rich or powerful or high-powered, if you will, in 126 to 31, but they sure think they are. Here he describes them as these rich rulers who have everything they could possibly want in verse 8 now. So clearly he's being sarcastic. They're wise and strong and honored people in verse 10. There's an undeniable worldliness to the Corinthian Christians. And Paul responds by skewering them, skewering them, sorry, in their self-importance. That's also sometimes stewardship. There's a place for that in pastoral ministry. If it's necessary, if people are that self-deluded in their worldliness. We don't have that type of situation here, but there is a time for this. The main way he does this is by contrasting them with guys who are actually apostles and what their lives are like, namely himself and Apollos in verse 6. Paul does that to keep the different factions in the church from playing the apostles against each other. And if you are parents of more than one child, you have done this, because kids always go to mom if dad said no and vice versa. So you learn to say things like, mom and I have decided, your dad and I have decided, right? So that they know, oh, they've already talked, we can't play one against the other. Saying, you Corinthians are all kings, but we apostles, we're condemned men on our way to be killed in the arena. I wish we were kings like you guys. I wish we had nothing to worry about, like like you apparently don't. You Corinthians have everything you want, but we're publicly humiliated and shamed in front of angels and humans alike in verse 9. We're foolish and weak and dishonored in verse 10. We have nothing to eat or to wear. We have no way of defending ourselves. We have nowhere to live in verse 11. And our only response to slander and persecution is to endure it and bless our oppressors in verse 12. You guys, compared to us, really have it easy. How do we get in on that as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries? 
We're the scum of the earth, the muck that you scrape off the bottom of your shoe in verse 13. You guys, meanwhile, are living the high life. And here's the thing. Paul is not asking for pity here. He's not playing the victim card. And In the ancient world, that wasn't transformed yet by at least the system of Christian morality. There was no victim card to play anyway. This is Paul being straight. What Paul is doing, without ever mentioning the word cross, is reminding them that at the heart of this gospel, they say they proclaim, and of which they say they're stewards, is the shamed, brutalized, and humiliated son of man who had nowhere to lay his head, and that Christians take their cue from him rather than from those whom the world would elevate and admire. And we, we, we do this, I think, without even realizing what we're doing. We want the most polished, accomplished, impressive people we can get in pastoral ministry. And like I said before in chapter 3, no pastor should try to be a bum, right? And, and not care and be lazy. No. It's that the design is that in some sense or in different senses, the minister looks like the message. Right? There's, there's something to that. There's something to that. Or at least has an awareness. Because in America, many of us as ministers are actually affluent compared to the rest of society or different cultures that we live in. So how do you do it then? Right? But he's saying, what he's trying to say is you better get off your high horses is what Paul is saying in context here. The Corinthians, here's what's happened. In seeking to promote the wisdom and honor and wealth and status of the world as their standard of wisdom and leadership, they have Christianity now completely upside down. Like, like that's, that's what it is to be a Christian pastor, is to be as impressive and wise and sharp and wealthy and all that as you can be. And they're not the only ones, beloved. Again, I don't, don't believe we really have that sense in our church, but you, you don't have to look far in much of the contemporary church to see success defined in exactly the same ways as it is in the world. Now, we probably do struggle with that. I think every church does. Right? We're, we judge by appearances. It's very interesting that Jesus warned us against that specifically. Do not judge by appearances. When we do that, we are at best mistaken and at worst outright sinning. Do not judge by appearances. That's not the way to evaluate. And if we let those standards become the standard of evaluation in the church, you can see how it can go off the rails. And in chapter 3, we don't want to go off the rails. When it comes to the fact as we walk into chapter 4 that we're actually stewarding what belongs to someone else. So if we jump in there and say, no, I will determine what makes this, what makes it count as good and successful and accomplished. We'll determine that. I mean, look at how these businesses do it. All that starts happening or look at how these people do it. Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. You don't need to. Right? That's, that's kind of the theme here. You don't need to do all that. The church is in very capable hands. Not the hands of the pastor. The hands of Christ. That's what he's driving at. I mean, we, we judge by numbers and um, downloads and budgets and book sales and academic qualifications and buildings and celebrity attendance sometimes and worldly influence, whatever it is. Now, 
None of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But those of us that have them or that might be tempted by them need to examine our hearts frequently in light of 1 Corinthians 4 and in light of the cross to which it points to see, to be mindful, to always know whether we have flipped the gospel on its head without even realizing it. The previous paragraph then, that 8 to 13, that you, that's Paul in rare form, and he knows it. Okay? Paul is, he is an apostle, but he's also a pastor here. Yes, there are times when pastoral care would have to be strong, right? Admonishing people uh, doesn't always sound as polite or affirming as our culture might like, but the pastor must also remember this. Because right away he changes his tone. I mean right away. Quite abruptly. He reassures the church that his intention in doing that is not to shame them, but to warn them. Right, pick it up in 14 here. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist, consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So notice that his language moves from sarcasm to intimacy right away. The Corinthians are his beloved children. Even if they had 10,000 guardians in Christ, Paul would have remained their father, spiritually speaking, because he was the one who first preached the gospel to them in verse 15. So he urges them to imitate him. Again, how? By pursuing unity, humility, and the foolishness of the cross, rather than the divisive, boastful arrogance of worldly Corinth, just as children imitate their parents in verse 16. So, like father, like son is what Paul is saying. Now, having said that, Paul picks up on it right away. It is tricky to imitate someone who isn't physically present. This is a problem Paul faced throughout his ministry. In that after preaching the gospel and establishing a local church, he'd either be forced to skip town and do the same thing somewhere else, or he'd get thrown in jail for disturbing the public order. So after the initial period of ministry, he wasn't, awful, uh, wasn't often accessible to the churches he had started, which made it much harder for them to imitate him. So what does Paul do? Discipleship is difficult from a distance. That's one reason why, despite Paul's itinerant example, the normal pattern of New Testament church life is to have local pastors who stay in one place for many years. So to address this, Paul is sending them Timothy. He calls him, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, in verse 17. A man, a young man at this point, who has had the opportunity to live life with Paul and knows what Paul is like and knows what Paul wants imitated, right? Timothy's role is to be a bridge between Paul and the Corinthians and a reminder of Paul's way of life. Those things, as I teach them everywhere in every church. That's a fairly brief 
introduction to Timothy. He won't be mentioned again until the very end of the letter. But there are two vital points here about the way disciples are made informed. We really could have done two sermons on chapter 4. Um, we could have done it on you know, the, the, what pastoral ministry is, but also then what it is to make disciples or how you make disciples. So the first vital point about the way disciples are made informed is this. Disciples are ultimately made by people. Disciples aren't primarily made by ideas or teachings or letters. Even if those letters are from the Apostle Paul himself, they're made by real, tangible human people who embody the gospel as well as preach the gospel. The other vital point about making and forming disciples here is that discipleship is a combination of doctrine as I teach them everywhere, and practice all my ways in Christ. Good teaching is essential, but transformation happens when people not only teach, but live out the Christian life right in front of us. Showing us how the cross shapes our work, our relationships, our finances, and in this case specifically, our unity and humility in Christ. This is, this is such an important thing. I think, I think maybe Ben and I were talking about this the other day. There's nothing, if, if, if a young couple comes to you, young dad, and says, how do you parent as a Christian? Giving them a book on parenting is not a, not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I don't want to, and sometimes that's all you can do. But really, what would be the best thing to do? Why don't you come into my home and we'll start hanging out together and you can watch how I parent my children? That, so you can have that and a book, but you do need both. Which means, preaching, beloved, is not for making disciples. Because you can't make a disciple from the pulpit. How did Jesus make disciples? What did he do? Jesus walked around. He invited 12 men into his life and they hung out with him for three years. He didn't just show up and preach to them a few times a week, right? That's why the whole church is called, our commission to all of us is to make disciples. Because one pastor can't possibly do that with everyone in his congregation. That's impossible. And could you imagine if the church was that reliant on one man? And thank God it isn't. At least it's not designed to be. You are gifted in ways I am not. I may be gifted in ways you are not. And each one of us needs all of us. Preaching doesn't make a disciple. I don't don't think it's designed to when we look at the whole of Scripture. That's not what preaching is meant to do. Which should also, I I would hope, help us understand, then what, what does the sermon need to do? It doesn't need to make disciples. It doesn't need to teach you step by step how to live. That's not what preaching is for. That's what disciple making is for. That's what relationships in the church are for. So God did not give preaching to the church as the primary means of our growth. Preaching is like a shotgun blast of Christ crucified for the sake of our faith. It's buckshot. Just spray. You need a good spray when you preach, right? At least that's how I see it. That's what I'm talking about, right? Making disciples in the ebb and flow of everyday life together, that's a sniper rifle. That's a sniper rifle. That's, I'm targeted on you. So, I don't preach to teach you how to live mainly. That's really not my goal in preaching. 
I believe preaching is for the proclamation of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, as he said in chapter 2. So that's what I go after in preaching, from the pulpit mainly. I like to have lunch with people and talk to people and have breakfast and hang out with people when it comes to making disciples. But remember, a pastor, you know, you, you, you can't do that with everybody, and that's not how the church is designed to work. Right? And so those are things we also have to think through as a people. But becoming a disciple happens in life together. And food and drink and visits and conversation and time spent together, that's where you get down into the dirt of living. There's not a lot of dialogue during a sermon, is there? Not a lot of questions, not a lot of discussing things. That's not what this is for. And you really need that when you talk about making disciples. Like, like hold on a minute, what, what are you saying? What does that mean? What, like, let me see that, right? I can't live anything out from the, in front of you from the pulpit. And, and the priesthood of all believers means that each one of us is as capable as that pastor in helping other people grow in their faith. So what, what I'm trying to do, just for what it's worth in preaching, is, is get you resting in Christ so deeply and happily that you have the well you need to draw from to live it out for other people and for one another. So the challenges in Corinth in particular, they're severe. right? We don't have challenges like the church in Corinth did. We have challenges, but we don't have... Wait until we get in next week, God willing, into chapter 5. You talk about challenges in a church. 5 and 6 are pretty unbelievable. But in a place like that, Paul knows that even Timothy will struggle to correct all of them, given the arrogance being shown by some in verse 18. So he plans to follow up with a visit himself, God willing, and then I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power in verse 19. Warnings are biblical too. There is a place for them. Now, it might sound here like Paul, like this is trash talk. Right? Like Paul is talking tough. Uh, you know, they could, well, he might say that in the media, but let's see what happens when we get in the ring together. It, it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. We later discover that the Corinthians don't think much of Paul's speech when he comes in person at all. Second Corinthians 10.10. 10. And Paul insists that the one thing he does not want is a war of words. Because the kingdom is not about words. It's not about who can make the better argument and look better. It's power here in verse 20. And the power is in the gospel. It's not in the man. So in planning to visit them, he isn't hoping for a showdown at all. That's the opposite of what he wants. That's what he's trying to say. I don't want it to be like that. I don't want it to be some back and forth of words. I want it to be the real thing. So we get to the heart of the matter. He's hoping to visit with love and a spirit of gentleness in verse 21. That's what he prefers. But what he's saying is, look, ultimately, I have a job to do as a steward of this and a servant of Christ. So that's how I want it to be when I come. But whether or not it goes that way, that's up to you. You need to repent, he's saying. You need to address these things. So like any good father, he's, he's prepared to use discipline if he has to. Since the visit going the good way will require their repentance, but they haven't, given how far they're boasting his reach, that's, that doesn't seem like a very real possibility. So it, it makes us wonder, you know, what, what on earth are these people boasting about? Where is this pride and arrogance coming out? that Paul has to speak so forcefully. Surely it can't be that bad, can it? Well, as we reach, you know, we're headed into chapter 5 and 6, we're about to find out. 
kind of the, the, the issues there. The unwillingness to deal with sin in the camp. The fact that they're willing to sue each other to solve their problems in public court. I mean, it is, there are ways in which the Corinthian church is just off the rails. But Paul wrote back in 3, 6 through 9, the pastors are servants, they're planters, they're waterers, and only God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. And the way that he words it there, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. We touched on that last week, didn't we? We, oh man, I, I remember, uh, well, it'd take too long. Just, we kind of want to jump in there and say, well, you're something. You know, the, the pastor is something. Paul wants to say, no, the pastor is nothing. Only God is something. Now, why would he go that far? So that nobody gets it messed up. Right? No, just, it's better to say, that guy's nothing. And it's better for this guy to think, look in the mirror, you're nothing. It's not self-deprecating. It's not about self-esteem. Right? I think we all probably have plenty of that in our society. This is about the centrality of the gospel and the reality of its power, of its power. Only God is something then, is what Paul is trying to say. That the laborers are actually nothing as it pertains to the success and growth of the church, of course. That's what he's saying. Now, as we close here, why would God set it up that way? Why would God set it up so that the, the, the men at the front are nothing? They're not supposed to be so impressive that you can't get around them, right? They're not the gatekeepers of who's in and who's out of the faith. They're not people that would have been amazing in the world, but thankfully God got them into His little messy thing that He's trying to do over here. You see how insulting it is to say that, to think, we got to... Maybe God can convince this heavy hitter to come into his little pathetic church thing and help out here and then we'll be successful. And like I said, and it, look, it's not self-deprecating. It, like, it, it's not, you, you don't have, you don't have a guy that was, would be a heavy hitter in the world. I can't do much at all. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at guys. I was having breakfast with a brother the other morning. And he was talking about how he'd, he'd helped his daughter build a, a refurbish, a, like an, if I understand, an apartment or a house for her. And I'm thinking, if my daughter's handing me and said, Dad, could you help put in a new bathroom? I could buy some towels. I could, you know, I could buy the things. So, and again, I, I don't say that, you know, it, it, I try to say that we aren't meant to be. Now, again, that doesn't excuse me not knowing how to help my daughters. Please understand that. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying that you, you don't need to find people that are impressive, thank God, by the world standards, to be successful pastors. God will determine that. Right? That's very scary to me. It might be a little easier if I could just say, as long as the human court approves of me, I'm good. It doesn't matter if the human court approves of me or not. I have to stand before the Father for all this. Right? For all of it. But this, this, why would, so, the original question, why would God set it up this way? That such potential weaklings or, um, not so great guys would, would be shepherding and leading His church. 
Because the power of the church is in something other than the people that make it up, especially including its leaders. The fact that God doesn't need all that ought to be of great comfort to us. He's not stressing about whether or not His church will be successful. He's not stressing. Right? He's not. He's not, well, I gotta get more, I, I gotta convince these guys to get in or it's gonna crumble. I need that man's skill and I need this one's uh, money and if I don't get all this, what's gonna happen to my church? Nothing's gonna happen to his church. This is the way he's building it. That's how powerful he is. That's how powerful the gospel is. He can make it take over the world as it has, even when you try to snuff it out with bums. That be, so why? So that they'll say, they'll look to Christ. They'll look at Christ. The gospel will be the thing that's impressive somehow when it's foolishness to them and they hate it. God raises the dead, right? So he can do this. The power is not in the servants and the stewards. The power of the church is in the gospel, which is why God has pastors be only servants and stewards. That's all he needs them, needs them to do. Just don't mess it up. He doesn't need our input or skill. Therefore, what does he command of us? Faith. What is required in God's eyes? And again, I realize any pastor could use it as an excuse. I, there, there is, I do understand that, but the truth stands. What does God say He requires of the stewards that they be found faithful? That's all He's asking. And, and if, if we all, but especially the pastor, embrace it, look, that's all I'm asking you to do. I need you to be faithful to this to the best of your ability and to the best of your understanding. Therefore, study and pray and all that, right? Not excusing any type of laziness here. But, but God is saying, look, let me build it, but I'm not there. I mean, in the sense that we can't see him, right? And we're all meant to imitate Christ. Paul says, though, what does Paul say? Imitate me for I imitate Christ. So you, you, we, we each got to get around people that imitate Christ. That's kind of how you make disciples. You're around it. But I, I, I do, there is a great comfort there. Even as I'm in this sermon, I'm feeling comfort that I didn't feel walking into it or studying it. Right? Just be faithful. Just be faithful. God is taking care of it. You just do this. Right? I'll build it. I'll make it grow. The church has been entrusted to servants of Christ who are called to faithfully steward His people as beloved children. The goal of the pastor has to be to shepherd the people with the gospel as peaceably, peacefully as possible, like a loving father, which there will be times that involves discipline, if there's an attempt to override the centrality of God's wisdom or the exclusivity of the gospel, right? Sometimes, again, if the church gets off track, part of the pastor's stewardship is to, is to bring it back to the center, not to him, but to the center, to Christ. But we find here that the hold of God on the church is apparently so strong that the stewardship of mere men is not going to destroy it. It gives me great comfort to know, and you have no idea how much comfort it gives me to know that I can't destroy 
the church. I can't kill it, right? I can mess it up and destroy it in that sense, but I can't make it go away. I can't silence the gospel. I can't silence Jesus. We are called to be faithful. Stewards, not successful. There is a difference. The whole church has to think of themselves in this way or we're going to let worldly wisdom creep in because we're tempted. Just let's not go beyond what is written. Okay? The Bible says to do it. Do it. If it doesn't, either don't do it or at least have honest conversations. Right? But don't go beyond it. We don't need to. If the Bible, which is authoritative, tells you not to go beyond what is written, then you know that what is written is all you need. We can't outthink the Holy Spirit we don't need to. The church will succeed. He will build it. He will make it grow. Why? Why is the church going to succeed? Why are you and I going to be okay? Beloved, because Jesus doesn't fail. And Jesus doesn't lie. And that's all there is to it.